Hello and welcome. This is The Intersection. My name is Mark Riley, and I want to thank you so much for listening to this episode of my podcast. We have part two of my conversation with writer, poet, and educator Quincy True. But first, the Derek Chauvin murder trial. You know, I have been covering police killings of black people, most of them innocent, most of them unarmed, since the early 1970s. And I've mentioned before uh, that started with the killing of a young man named Clifford Glover, who would be a full-blown adult were he to be alive today. And time after time after time after time, and I'm just talking about New York City now, I saw black people die at the hands of police and seen police not brought to justice. I've seen police tried. I've seen police acquitted. I remember very clearly the Amadou Diallo case where a group of police officers mistook a young man reaching for his wallet for reaching for a gun and they shot at him 41 times, hit him 15. They were acquitted. I remember Sean Bell, another situation where I was on a radio show while the jury was out and someone asked me whether or not I thought those cops would be convicted and I said, quite frankly, no. And sure enough, the following week, they were acquitted. So I've seen this a lot. And to be quite honest with you, you end up getting fatigued. You end up, I don't want to say getting tired, uh, but you get fatigued because you see the same scenario played out over and over and over again. However, this case may just be different. The proceedings that is the murder trial of Derek Chauvin, police officer in Minneapolis, are those proceedings are being broadcast across America and around the world. Chauvin, by the way, is charged with second and third degree murder and second degree manslaughter in the death of George Floyd last May 25th. Floyd's murder touched a nerve not just in black communities, but among people all over the planet. Rallies marches, in some cases uprising, referenced his killing as a line that had been crossed. And again, as someone who's covered police killings for a long time, this one appears to be different. That's because, in my humble opinion, this is not just the trial of one man, one police officer. This, I believe, is a trial of a particular type of American policing. It's not limited to Minneapolis, where Chauvin's trial is taking place. It's a type of policing that goes back to the founding of the nation when it comes to dealing with black people. Now, when you start saying things like that, people say, oh, no, no, no. It, wasn't, it doesn't go back that far. No, law enforcement wasn't involved in the rounding up of fugitive slaves uh, back during slavery, etc. It has nothing to do with modern policing. I beg to differ. I believe that there is a compulsion to control in Chauvin's actions, and by the way, in the actions of many other police officers in encounters with black people, some of which are not fatal. But there is this thing about control, and I believe that that stems from fear. And I think those actions sound familiar to those who pay attention to the disparate outcomes 
between white and black encounters with police. It also explains why whites and blacks often have wildly different views on the issue of police brutality. Despite the fact that the prosecution in this case appears to be quite well prepared, and they seem to have ample video evidence pointing to Chauvin's culpability, historically, and I'm not saying in this specific case, but historically, the odds favor the cops. Time and time and time again, as I've referenced before, police accused of killing black civilians manage to get off, whether it's a grand jury that fails to indict, acquittal after a trial, or a prosecutor who refuses to even bring a case to a grand jury. I've seen it happen often enough to become deeply cynical about a system that cheapens black life this way. This is why Black Lives Matter has played a pivotal role in turning George Floyd's murder into an international cause, and why so many police apologists try to demonize Black Lives Matter. It's also why those same people fall silent about racist cop chat rooms like The Rant in New York. The racist, sexist, misogynistic caterwauling of cops that include the former commander of the NYPD unit that investigates discrimination complaints is a stain that makes good cops look bad. Make no mistake, there are good cops. Cops like Brian Sicknick killed after the Capitol riot on January 6th. More recently, William Evans killed when a man rammed his car into him. Those two represent the polar opposite of Derek Chauvin. Derek Chauvin represents an old, tired, fetid model of policing that never should have existed, much less lasted into the 21st century. His defense will no doubt focus on the cause of George Floyd's death, as if a knee on his neck for nine minutes wasn't a mitigating circumstance, or perhaps an aggravating circumstance. They will try to blame the victim, the man who can no longer speak for himself. Perhaps this will be a time when justice will be served after the loss of a black life at the hands of someone who took an oath to serve and protect that very life. If American policing is found wanting and changes result, George Floyd would have not died in vain. And it's interesting to me that, for example, in England, in the UK, there is a new policing bill that they're trying to put forward that would put new restrictions, new and some say severe restrictions, on people's right to protest. In fact, this particular bill, among other noxious components, but this bill would say that police would have the right to stop a single individual from protesting if the police deemed them to be too loud or too boisterous or whatever. And there have been huge marches across England, across England, against this particular bill. I believe that George Floyd is part of the reason for that sort of fierce opposition because there have been marches, Black Lives Matter marches, marches against the police that in one case killed 
George Floyd, and the others who stood back and watched and did very little, if nothing, it's all seeming to come together. And what it seems to say is that there's a new generation of people, white, black, Arab, Latino, etc., that will not stand for this type of policing to continue. That is at the root of the movement to defund the police, which I don't necessarily agree with, but I do understand why people take that position. And it's time now for people to take a very, very long look, not just at the Derek Chauvin murder trial, that's one component, but at the idea that this type of bully boy policing has run its course and needs to fade into history. The world is watching. Don't go away. Part two of my interview with Quincy Troop, award-winning writer and poet, is coming up. But first, Matt Gates, congressman from Florida, and one of the most bizarre series of charges and countercharges Washington has seen in a very, very long time. This is The Intersection. You're listening to The Intersection of Politics and Culture with Mark Riley. in your world? Is there an issue you'd like me to talk about? Hit me up with a comment on Facebook. Matt Gates is a member of Congress from the panhandle of Florida. He is a rabid supporter of Donald Trump, and he's in so much trouble, even Trump has been advised to keep his mouth shut. Turns out Gates is being investigated by the Justice Department for allegedly paying a 17-year-old young lady for sex and to travel with her for sexual purposes. There's a heck of a lot to unpack here. So we should start out by saying that Gates has not been charged with any crime. Even though he may be a reprehensible politician, you have to start out at least by saying he has not been charged with any crime. He has vehemently denied any wrongdoing, calling allegations, quote, unequivocally false. Before we go any further, it's worth noting that the investigation into Matt Gates was started by former Attorney General Bill Barr. So you can't say this is a Biden-inspired investigation. It grew out of a probe of another man, Joe Greenberg, former tax collector of Seminole County, Florida, and a close associate of Matt Gates. Greenberg has in fact been indicted and charged on sex trafficking and other malfeasance. That investigation remains open. The New York Times, which first reported the story, says there are allegations that Gates took ecstasy and had sex with a number of different women. And even if it's true that he didn't have sex with a minor, keep in mind ecstasy is illegal. All this from a guy who's only been in the House since 2017. He's rapidly risen to become one of the most visible members of the House of Representatives. He did so 
by being one of Donald Trump's most visible and reliable defenders and enablers. Fox News made him a favored guest. Along the way, and maybe we ought to pay attention to this, he voted against a bill that would have given the federal government more power to fight human trafficking. His visibility hasn't exactly endeared him to a good number of his GOP colleagues. Leave the Democrats out of this for a moment and think that some of his fellow travelers, okay, including some of the people uh, who voted to acquit Trump during his second impeachment, a, a bunch of different people, they don't even like this guy all that much. Much like Donald Trump, Gates tries to wear his unpopularity as a badge of honor, you know, from the Ted Cruz school. One wonders why he'd bother to show pictures of naked women he supposedly slept with to colleagues on the House floor, allegedly. Can you imagine that? A guy elected to do the people's business in the House of Representatives, passing naked photographs of women he said he slept with on the floor of the House of Representatives? Seemingly to divert attention from these allegations, Gates is defending himself by drawing attention to what he says is a $25 million plot to extort money from both him and his family. He also said travel records would disprove the allegation that he traveled with a 17-year-old for sex or, for that matter, any other purpose. The Washington Post did a deep dive into the allegations but their fact checker has not been able to get the records from Gates or his staff. Speaking of his staff, his chief spokesman, Luke Ball, resigned suddenly just the other day. I don't want to get too deep into this extortion business because it talks about layers upon layers and an Iran hostage and a whole bunch of other stuff, but that's a separate, a separate investigation. It's a subject of a separate investigation. But there are several things that we ought to question here. Number one, if Matt Gates enabled and repeated Donald Trump's lies about actually winning the presidential election, et cetera, et cetera, why should anyone believe him when he says he was never with an underage girl? I'm just asking. This ought to be the lot of anyone and everyone who enabled Trump's false narrative about the 2020 election. Why should anybody believe anything that these people say? But in this case, specifically, why should anybody believe anything that Matt Gates says? To quote the great Charles Lawton in the film Witness for the Prosecution, quote, were you lying then? Are you lying now? Or are you not in fact a chronic and habitual liar? Either way, Gates says he has no intention of resigning his seat or quitting his seat on the House Committee that oversees the Justice Department. As to his love life, I haven't heard that the women who were photographed naked and then shown to House members by Gates, they seem to have not raised any objection to their likenesses being used this way. One was reportedly photographed naked with a hula hoop. No matter how this mess turns out, we ought to remember that Gates's idol, Donald Trump, has remained awfully quiet when a few words of support would seemingly, seemingly uh, actually help him out. 
And the fact of the matter is that even if Matt Gates is charged with a crime, he'd be innocent until proven guilty. And you would think Donald Trump, of all people, would at least say that, yet he has not. Now, no matter what happens, my guess is Gates will double down, just like the man who he seemingly patterned his life after. It's truly a shame, to me anyway, that people like Matt Gates, Marjorie Taylor Greene, and others managed to get themselves elected to office, much less having the media opportunities that the right-wing media allows him and them. History, I think, will judge their constituents as harshly as they are judged, because after all, it is their constituents that put them in office where they are. I'd like to know what you think. Leave a comment on my Facebook page, or you can email me at markreillymedia.com. And finally, the second part of my conversation with writer, poet, and educator, Quincy Troop. Hi, I'm Quincy Troop, and you're listening now to Mark Riley. part of a generation of black writers, poets, and thinkers that express themselves in ways previous generations could not. Put simply, they took no shorts. In this second part of my conversation with Quincy, we talk about his most recent work, including writing the screenplay for Miles and Me, soon to become a major motion picture. Quincy, you have a film that's getting ready to come out, am I right? That was yeah. the, one of Miles' work. Talk, talk about the film and talk about how your writing oh. translates to film. All right. How do you see that? Well, see, poets are visual. And somebody told me one time, uh, my friend who is uh, uh, Rudy Langlace, who was my editor uh, first at, at the Village Voice and then at Span Magazine. Yeah, and Rudy went into making movies. And so Rudy's one of my really, really good friends, you know, and we, you know, we, uh, so he told me one time, uh, I, when I, I said to him, when uh, they bought the rights to my book, Miles and Me, yeah. and he said, I asked him, oh, great, great. He says, uh, he says, I, he says, uh, we're going to give you this amount of money and blah, blah, this, that. And then I said, well, yeah, well, who's going to write the screenplay? He said, you are. I said, <laughs> me? I'm going to write the screenplay? I don't know how to write a screenplay. He said, I'll talk you through it. He said, you're a poet and poets write in metaphors. Poets write in images and screen. Think of a movie. Think of a movie as a series of images, series of metaphor, a metaphor and with a series of images. That's what, a, that's what it is, you know, a series of images. I said, oh. And so I went home. I went home and, and I took my book. I took the book, The Miles and Me, but I took the book. And I started breaking down all of the scenes in it. And the first, the first, first, uh, uh, first attempt I made had at a screenplay, it was 250 pages. <laughs> he said, man, this thing is 250 pages. He said, edit. <laughs> and he said, edit. And he said, this, I'm going to tell you this, man, to be a, you an editor too. He said, but, 
And so when I got down to like, I, okay, I edited from 250 down to 200. And I told him, I got 200. He said, keep going. And so, <laughs> so I got it down 175 and I, I'm thinking it's getting tighter and tighter. So I got, when I got, and so I, I know he's ruthless, uh, Rudy is. So yeah. I didn't call him right then. I didn't call him I got it down 150 pages. He said, stop, <laughs> stop. He said, stop. He said, now come the hard choices. Mm. Now come the hard choices. Because what we need is between 135 and 140 pages, mm. you know, things. He said, now it's gonna be hard to do that. But so that's what you got to do now. So that's what I started doing. And uh, he kind of went through it with me. He went through it with me. And uh, he went through it with me. Um, and uh, he said, poets make the best screenwriters. Mm. Because poets think, in like I said before, in terms of imagery and rhythm, you know, and, uh, and, and metaphor, you know, and they, t uh, it's like a series of scenes and what a, a scene is, is nothing but it's just an image, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, uh, you, you, uh, when you describe that, uh, I keep thinking back to a poem for magic because yeah. you told me yesterday, you've never met the man, right? But yet you were yeah. able to capture his essence on a basketball court like nobody I've ever read before. Tell me how you did that. Well, you know, uh, because of the fact I was a basketball player also. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I understand basketball. You know, I really understand it about the whole game because I was a guard just like he was. Only he's 6'9 and I'm 6'2, you know, uh, you know, and but, but uh, guards control the game. Mm -hmm. A great guard controls the game, you know, uh, uh, and he controlled the game. He really did. He controlled it. He, he, he was the maestro. Yes, I, I don't, yeah, I don't know if there's ever been a maestro like him. You know, I've watched a lot of basketball players, but Magic Johnson just made everybody else better. You know? Oh, he, yeah. Like Kobe, Kobe was a great player, but he, he, didn't, sometimes, he didn't make everybody better. He, he was making himself better. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, you also wrote about Earl Monroe. Uh, who was, you know, one of my young, when I was a kid, that was, I couldn't play basketball for nothing, but he was the guy I wanted to be like because he was just so extraordinarily fluid this man. Well, see, Earl, I mean, Earl, you know, uh, Earl, I loved Earl Monroe growing up. I just loved him when I saw him play. So I never thought about doing nothing with him. I never thought about getting to know him. I didn't know. And then somebody said, you know, Earl Monroe, Earl Monroe lives in the building. I said, in, in this building where I live. I said, because it's four, 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 it's four room units, mm -hmm. house one, house two, house three, house four. I'm in house four and he's in house two. So one day um, uh, the doorbell rang and I go to the door. He had read my uh, Miles Davis book and he knew Miles and he was a, he loved Miles. Hey man, Earl Monroe. I said, I know who you are. He said, oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, oh yeah. I said, yeah, I, I used to be a basketball player, man. I used to love you. Really? I said, yeah. Who said, well, I want to talk to you about something. I said, what? Writing my book. I said, really? <laughs> <laughs> wow, man. You just kind of fall into those gigs. That's unbelievable, man. Unbelievable. And you also wrote a book well, about James Baldwin. Again, another one of my heroes. Yeah, well, J Jimmy, I knew. I knew Jimmy. I knew Jimmy because we used to hang out at McHale's. Yeah, my and, brother uh, did too. 
My brother Clayton yeah. hung out there. And David, his brother David, was that where he worked behind the bar? Was it McKell's? Yeah. I knew Clayton. I knew your brother. Yeah, yeah. And David, really David and Clayton were very close. And Dave, I think David worked a bar at McKell's, right? David worked the bar. Wow, Clayton's, Clayton's your brother. That's your brother, right? Your older brother. That's my brother. It's my older brother. Oh, I love Clayton, man. I was telling somebody about Clayton yes, uh, the other day. Uh, Clayton, <laughs> that's off the subject. We talk about that. <laughs> I love Clayton, man. And uh, Clayton and I used to get really got along well because we both worked at uh, at, at Span. We both worked for Rudy Langlais, you know, wrote for Rudy. He loved Rudy. And, and, uh, and uh, so, but anyway, so, uh, yeah, he, 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 I, we all hanging there, and, and J- Jimmy was there. I had met Jimmy, uh, uh, you know, and I had met Jimmy at, at McHale's, and, uh, and David was a good friend of mine also, yeah. you know, so I used to go in there all the time, and, and that's, because, I, I, like I said, I lived at 32 Central Park West, which is right across from McHale's. From McHale's, yeah, I, I, believe me, yeah. I know. Yeah, you know, <laughs> but you know, you know, you know what struck me though, Quincy, and this is something my brother, uh, because he was my brother, I understood about him, and I see it in you the same way. You guys came up during an era when black men were beginning to assert themselves in a way that a lot that perhaps my father or your father or the the preceding generation was not able to do. Uh, you all, if somebody made y'all mad, you just threw down, <laughs> which that's was unusual right. for black people back then. That's right. That's, that's that is exactly exactly right. I mean, we just threw down on people. You know, I I I used to, uh, like I said, I got kicked out of Gremlin, t- uh, you know, twice. You know, I got kicked <laughs> out of that. You know, I mean, I mean, I didn't intend to go down there and beat them up. You know, but if they said something stupid. You, you know, if they said something stupid, then, uh, yo, yo, man, well, let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> let's do it. Let's do it. You know, um, and, and the whole other thing is, is that uh, people, uh, people used to think that poets, uh, you know, being a poet and you're and Clayton being, you know, a writer also, you know, they think, that, especially a poet, they thought that, you know, you just, you know, a guy told me, one day, uh, be a, yeah, yeah, poet, man, I'll kick you. I'll do it. I said, excuse me? <laughs> I said, what? He said, what? And we were standing outside the building. I said, uh, I, I need to tell you something. I need to tell you something right now. I will take you out. <laughs> he was like, oh, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> Hold everything. Let's talk. <laughs> yeah, let's talk. I was like, yeah, I will take you out, man. You know, you up here talking stupid. You know what I mean? You don't even know who you're talking to. Did you understand how the impact that you had on the generation that followed you, my generation, which really benefited from your assertiveness? I didn't. I really didn't. Uh, you know, you know, I, I still don't. I still, to this day, people will come up to me and say, you're Quincy Troop. I say, yeah, man, I love you, man. I love your work. I love your practice. I just, man, you know, I grew up, I went to see you read and all that, you know, man, and, and I, man, my dad told me about you, man. And I was like, whoa, you know, <laughs> Clayton gives that. I mean, I, I get that all the time now from younger guys who I don't know, who I'm, I'm just meeting, like, like, I didn't know you were Clayton's uh, brother, you know, and Clayton and I were real close. Mm-hmm. 
And so all the guys like that, you know, that I kind of grew up when he grew up with, uh, because of the fact that being being a black guy, you know, you you know, people, you can't, you can't, you can't, uh, you you can't, uh, you can't be taking nothing off nobody, man. You know, it's like this is this is rough. This rough enough being in New York City, living just living here. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Stupid, stupid don't count, you know. <laughs> stupid <laughs> sure don't count. No, it don't count, you know. <laughs> you know, absolutely. And, and I, you know, I, and then I close this out. I mean, I. Uh, I really love people, you know. Uh, I have a great wife and who has never have, had a fight. <laughs> We've been together 40. We have never had a, We had one, almost. You know, <laughs> almost. She's a wonderful woman. She's uh, from Mississippi. And uh, just a gentle spirit, you know. Uh, great spirit and uh, talented and everything, you know. So I'm very lucky in a way. She's taught me how to cool down. This has been such an honor to talk with you uh, for this extended amount of time. Our guest is Mr. Quincy Troop, award-winning poet, writer, activist, journalist, the whole nine yards. When uh, now have they started shooting Miles and Me yet? Oh yeah, that's what I wanted to talk about. That yeah, it's it's based on Miles and Me. Yeah, uh, the, the book Miles and Me, the memoir, and uh, they were supposed to start uh, in uh, when was this last year, but then COVID came. Mm -hmm. So they had to cancel, they had to rooting them, they had to cut it down, shut it down. So now uh, they're going to do it, uh, they're going to start it sometime in the next couple of months. Because okay. when the COVID, you know, they no, it can't do it until COVID is, you know. And COVID is under control for sure. It's under control. So that means it's going to come out next year. I had, I had a talk with Rudy uh, uh, two, two days ago, uh, or two days ago about that. He calls me up and he said, man, you know, I tell him, I said, he said, man, I know it's hard, man. I know it's hard, <laughs> you, you know, and I mm. said, but it is. So it's going to come out next year. <clears throat> and um, Rudy Langlais uh, is is the producer. Absolutely. He's going to direct it. And uh, Denzel is involved as one of the executive producers. And uh, and uh, he's involved. When, I, I like to get on Denzel's case, you know, because. And I and I because Rudy and he are tight. He, they tight. They did the he did because Rudy produced the hurricane. So, okay. So he says things like, you know, Denzel's gonna be on it. He signed on. Him. So I said, Denzel. <laughs> <laughs> so Denzel, Denzel calls Rudy and said, What's wrong with him, man? What's wrong with he said that <laughs> I teach, but Denzel's involved. Um uh I don't know who's gonna play somebody. This French actress is going to play Juliet Greco. Um, uh, they got a nice cast he's putting together. I'm I'm really happy about it. Who's uh, playing Miles? Uh, what's his name? Michael K. Williams. Oh, okay. Michael, Michael K. Williams is playing Miles, and, and they were trying to t talk about who's going to play me. So Jamie Fox wants to play me. Really? That's what they said. That's what okay. they told me. Jamie Fox. He, he's a gifted actor, man. I love Jamie Fox. And you know, but I like to pull. Uh, I like to pull uh, uh, Rudy's leg. I said, you know, but James, James is a little sharp, man. He said, man, I'm gonna tell him you said that. <laughs> Let's go. That is cool. Yeah. Quincy, again, I, I just want to thank you so much for the time, man. I really, really appreciate it. Oh, I appreciate you. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Intersection. The executive producer of the broadcast is Miss Kim Jack Riley. Music is by Eric Lund. Until we meet again, please stay well.